<clears throat> oh, I guess I should introduce myself for anybody that doesn't know me. I'm Slade Reinhardt. I'm the Director of Youth Ministry and Adult Connect and Grow Ministries here at the church, and uh, it's my honor today to bring God's Word to you. Well, uh, we are still in our Roman series. Uh, Sunday mornings, we're preaching through the book of Romans, our sermon series called Live by Faith. And today, we're going to be in Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, so you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. The great Roman emperor Augustus Caesar was born Gaius Octavius, and the family was a wealthy and influential family, his immediate family was, but his most important family connection was his maternal great-uncle, that being Julius Caesar. And because of this connection he had with Julius Caesar, he was afforded quite a lot of opportunities within the Roman Empire, such as accompanying Julius on some of his uh, military expeditions. But when Octavius was 18 years old, something happened that changed his life as well as the course of world history. He was out of the country completing uh, some training and education. When he learned that Julius Caesar had been assassinated, this was in 44 BC, uh, for you history buffs, he learned that Julius Caesar had been assassinated and that upon his assassination, of course, uh, they, they went to his will to see what would happen with his estate and belongings. And in his will, he had named Octavius as his adopted son and chief heir. Well, with this newfound uh, resources and status, Octavius embarked on a new path of life that, of course, ultimately ended with him becoming the first emperor of the Roman Empire. Octavius's life and destiny were changed when he was adopted as a son of Julius Caesar, who at that time was the most powerful man in the world. And in this passage we're going to look at today, we're going to be reminded, or perhaps learn for the first time, that everyone who trusts in Christ, everyone who believes in his sinless life, in his substitutionary death, in his victorious resurrection, is adopted as a son by God himself, the most powerful being in the universe. Now think about that for just a second. Adopted by God. The God who created everything that exists. The one true God. The God who needs absolutely nothing. Julius Caesar chose an heir because he wanted someone to carry on his legacy and he needed that. God needed absolutely nothing and out of his abundant grace and generosity adopted us who believe in his son. Praise God and amen for that. Adoption is part of the theme of today's passage, but it doesn't just talk about adoption. Uh, <clears throat> it actually connects our adoption to the work of the Holy Spirit within us. To me, the key phrase in this passage is found in the second half of verse 15, where it says, You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Every verse in this paragraph connects to this truth, and that's the, the work of the Spirit within us related to our adoption is really the theme that runs throughout this paragraph. <clears throat> and it's important to notice that the, that the Scriptures say that we are adopted as sons. And then in one verse it says that we are sons of God. Now the reason it specifies sons and doesn't say sons and daughters is because the, uh, the Scripture, the Lord wanted to highlight the fact that when we are adopted into his family, we receive the full rights, privileges, and blessings of a member of the family of God. In cultures at that time, it was the sons who received the full rights, privileges, and inheritance of the family. So God is saying both daughters and sons who trust in Christ 
are given the full rights, the full privileges, the full inheritance of being a part of the family of God. Now, the main action in these six verses is the action of the Spirit. He's called the Spirit, the Son, excuse me, the Spirit of God, and of course, the Spirit of adoption as sons. So what I want to do is just look at what God reveals to us about the work of the Spirit within us in relation to our adoption. So first of all, God tells us that the Spirit of adoption leads us to kill sin. The Spirit of adoption leads us to kill sin. Look at verses 12 to 14. So then, brothers, we are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Verse 12 begins with, so then, meaning that, meaning that he's drawing a conclusion from something that he just said. And I'll get back to that in just a minute. But the conclusion that he draws is that we are debtors. So then, brothers, we are debtors, meaning that we are under obligation. We owe somebody something. To whom are we debtors? Or as we say in East Texas, who are we debtors to? To whom are we debtors? Well, the scriptures say, first of all, that it is not to the flesh, meaning our sinful nature, our sinful desires. We aren't under obligation to live according to the flesh. And remember, living according to the flesh ends in death. That possibility for the believer is out. Living a life yielded to sinful desires is not an option for a believer in Christ. And he reminds us again that living that life ends in destruction. That is a mark of those who do not believe in Christ. So why did Paul feel the need here to say we are not debtors to the flesh? Well, I think it's because it often feels like we owe it to our flesh to satisfy its desires. Because our flesh is constantly clamoring to be satisfied. Uh, one of the closest analogies I can think of, how many of you are parents of teenagers? And how many of you are teenagers? Got a good mix. Okay, well, uh, hopefully teenagers are aware of this, but parents of teenagers 100% are aware of this. When a teenager sets his heart, his or her heart on something, a new phone, a car, a trip, a concert... They can be like a force of nature, relentlessly assailing you until you give them what they desire. And that's what our sinful flesh is like. And I'm not saying, teenagers, that you're evil and, and sinful. Uh, I mean, all people are, but, uh, but our, the, the parents are too. Our sinful flesh is like that. It is constantly clamoring to be satisfying. I need this. I need this. I want this. I want this. And so we can get the impression that, well, I've got to give in to it some. I kind of... Owe that to my flesh. Because your flesh is going to try to convince you that a particular sin is a desperate need. Or that it's the one thing that will complete and satisfy you. So it feels like we're debtors to the flesh. And Paul wanted to make sure that we knew that that is an absolute lie from our flesh and from the devil himself. We are not obligated to fulfill the desires of the flesh. We're not obligated to live according to its desires. That path is the path of death. So whose debt are we in? To whom are we obligated? Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning again. That's so then. So he said, so then we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In verses 10 and 11, right before this, he said that it is through the Spirit that we are made alive. The Spirit gives us spiritual, eternal life. So our obligation, our debt, 
is to the spirit. So instead of living in yieldedness to our flesh, he's saying you are obligated to live yielded to the spirit, to follow the spirit, to obey the spirit. And what is the spirit leading us to do? He's leading us to put to death the deeds of the body. He's talking about sinful desires, attitudes, and actions. At the end of Romans 1, Paul gives a whole list of these. He mentions envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, and a whole host of others. We are under obligation to the Spirit to kill these things in our lives. Now, don't get the idea that Paul is giving an additional condition for our salvation or for maintaining our salvation. If the tiniest iota of your salvation depends upon your obedience or your faithfulness, then you are completely lost. Because only one man in history, Jesus of Nazareth, has ever been faithful and obedient to God 100% of the time. And that is what God's standard is. <clears throat> At the beginning of chapter 8, Paul said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are united to Christ. And how do we become united to Christ? By believing in him, by trusting in him, not by our faithfulness, not by our obedience. By faith, we are united to Christ and then removed from under condemnation. So Paul is not adding some condition to being saved. He's saying this is how those who have been saved should live according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. And he is underscoring once again the seriousness of yielding to sin. Sin leads to death. Verse 14 says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So this leading that he is talking about, this leading the Spirit gives us to fight to kill our sin, is one of the realities of our adoption into God's family. We are now at war with our sinful flesh. Sons of God are driven by the Holy Spirit to kill their sin. It's one of the realities of our adoption the struggle you experience in resisting temptations is a sign that you are a son of God since the Spirit is leading you to fight your sin instead of yielding your, to your sin. Well, how do we kill sin by the Spirit? I think we would all agree by experience and by rational thought that pure, sheer willpower is not enough. We do need, and that's why he adds, that we kill the, the deeds of the body by the Spirit. We need the power and strength of the Spirit. We kill sin by naming it for what it is. That's called confession. We say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. Don't explain away your temper by saying you're just a passionate person. Don't justify your lust by saying boys will be boys. Call your sin, sin, and admit it to the Lord. We kill sin also by pursuing righteousness. Colossians 3 says that we should put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If you tend to be greedy, you can pursue generosity by recognizing that everything you have, everything you possess is a gift from God. And then you can fight the sin of greed by being generous, generous with other people, sharing what you have to those who are in need. You also pursue righteousness by spending time in God's word and spending time in prayer. <clears throat> because those are the two of the main means of grace that God uses to shape your heart to be more like Christ. There are, of course, a number of other aspects in this battle against sin I could go into. But the main point is that our obligation to the Spirit and our motivation from the Spirit is to fight sin to the death by the Spirit's power. And one more thing I do want to add to that. This is not saying that you will encounter a particular sin 
and overcome it, kill it, and then be done with it for the rest of your life. Okay, killing sin, even a particular sin, may be something that you have to do every day, ten times a day for the rest of your life. I'm tempted to be arrogant, but I humbled myself and I gave praise to someone else. That doesn't mean that I'll never be tempted to be arrogant again. I may be tempted later that day or the next day or next week. But whenever you resist a temptation or whenever you pursue righteousness, you are killing sin. And that is a lifelong activity. You may have to kill lust 50 times a day. You may have to kill gossip 100 times a week. But keep in mind that you can kill sin by the Spirit's power in the moment of temptation, and that when you fail, you have an advocate with the Father, who, of course, is forgiving and loving. Don't lose heart. Be encouraged that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, is working in you to keep fighting. We who have trusted in Christ are made alive in our practice of life. We're enabled to live lives that are spiritually alive, which involves killing sin by the Spirit. The spirit of adoption leads us to kill sin. The second work of the spirit that the Lord highlights in this passage is this. The spirit of adoption impels us to call on God as father. Look at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is one of the greatest and most tender promises in all of Scripture. Believers have received the spirit of adoption as sons, and then the spirit impels us to call on God as our Father. As I mentioned earlier, being adopted into sonship means that we're given the full rights, privilege, and inheritance that is due to a son. <clears throat> and the spirit that we have received is not the spirit of slavery which causes fear. After telling us the sons of God are led by the Spirit to kill sin, God wants us to know that the Spirit is not acting as a cruel taskmaster to make us fearful of messing up. Have you ever been there? Worried that God is just waiting to smash you when you step out of line? Many believers live that way, thinking that God relates to them as a cruel master relates to a slave. Only willing to put up with them as long as they do what they're supposed to do. But that is not true. That is another lie from Satan that disparages the kindness and love of God. As John Calvin observed, the Holy Spirit has not been given for the purpose of harassing us with trembling or tormenting us with anxiety. We do not have the spirit of slavery which drives us to fear punishment if we don't measure up. And notice that the verb is past tense. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons. As one author put it, God is not waiting for us to cross the finish line before he signs the adoption papers and makes us his children forever. When you trust in Christ, immediately the spirit of God comes to dwell in you and you are adopted into the family of God forever. <clears throat> and the spirit impels us toward relating to God as our father. To impel means to urge or drive forward by the exertion of a strong moral pressure. Strong moral pressure. The spirit working within us drives us to call on God as father. 
You have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The word he uses that's translated cry there means to shout or to cry out. So it has the sense of when you are in trouble or when you are in pain, the work of the spirit within you urges you to cry out to your father for relief, comfort, or deliverance. In your most desperate moments when you've fallen into that abominable temptation or when you've experienced a soul-wrenching tragedy, you are urged by the Spirit to call out, to cry out, to scream out if necessary to your Father, intimately calling him Abba. One more comment by John Calvin. He said this, Instead of producing fear in our hearts, the Spirit calms us, restores us to tranquility, and stirs us up to call on God with confidence and freedom. The Spirit gives us an attitude, an attitude toward God such that we're driven to cry out to Him as Father when we're hurting or when we're in trouble. And as I am sure you have heard in a hundred sermons over your life, this word Abba was a very intimate, personal way uh, that someone would refer to their father. It was uh, not only little children, but even adult children would refer to their father that way. But it's similar to what we would use, uh, the term we would use, daddy or papa, a very close, intimate term. So God is saying, I am reaching out my arms to you to draw me into, let's see, I messed up my pronouns. I am reaching out my arms to you to draw me in, forget that. Okay, the Lord is reaching out to us to draw us close to him as as our, I still didn't get it. Let me just clear that for a second. The Lord wants us to relate to him as a loving father. We'll just say that, okay? Let's go with that. Man, I got off my notes and didn't know where I was. Uh, authors Kenneth Boa and William Crudenier express it this way. Because it is the spirit of God who is given to believers, the heart of the child of God is linked with the heart of the father in permanent intimacy. In permanent intimacy. Notice that God does not say, only cry out to me when you've been good. Only cry out to me when things are going well. Only cry out to me when you've done something good for me. When you've given to the church, when you've prayed regularly, when you've read three chapters a day in your Bible. Only cry out to me then. No, he says, I've given you the spirit to cry out, Abba, Father, whenever you're in trouble, whenever you're hurting. Anytime you have that freedom. And I know it doesn't feel that way. We don't always feel that permanent intimacy that we have with the Father. But the promise of God stands despite our emotions. Ephesians 1.5 says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And Galatians 4, mirroring what's said here in Romans 8, says, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The Spirit causes, causes us to see God and to love God as our perfect Heavenly Father. So in our times of trouble and need, we will cry out to Him. Child of God, stand on that truth. Cooperate with the Spirit's urging to cry out to God in the good times and in the bad ones. Don't let your pride or shame or pain push you away from God. No matter what you're feeling or experiencing, you can know that God wants you to call on Him as father. <clears throat> the final work of the spirit I want to discuss is this. The spirit of adoption assures us that we are children of God. Look again at verses, uh, not again, it's the first time. Look at verses 16 through 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit 
that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, providing that you suffer with him so that you may also be glorified with him. One of the most painful struggles you will experience in your life as a child of God is the struggle to find assurance that you are a child of God. When you have some sin that you just can't beat, when you find no joy in prayer, in reading the Bible or in corporate worship, when life is so hard but God feels so far away, at those times you are tempted by your sinful flesh and the devil cooperating with that sinful flesh. You are tempted to think, Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe God has not saved me. Maybe I am not a child of God. My faith may be a facade. I may be lost. Most Christians have struggled at one time or another with doubting the reality of their salvation. But the good news is that assurance is one of the works of the Holy Spirit. He bears witness, meaning he testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. How does he do that? How does he assure us? That we are children of God. Well, one way is by his very presence within us. 1 John 3, 24 says, By this we know that he abides abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. 1 John 4, 13, pardon me, says this. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Now, verse 14, remember, said that everyone who is led by the Spirit of God is a son of God. So being led to kill sin is a work of the Spirit that demonstrates the presence of the Spirit within you. And therefore is a testimony to the fact that you are God's child. I, uh, in my years of youth ministry, every now and again, a student will come to me and talk about a particular sin they're struggling with and say in so many words, I don't know if I'm really saved. And one of the comforts I give them is the fact that you are struggling with this sin is an evidence that you are really saved. The fact that you want to be rid of this sin, the fact that you want to kill this sin demonstrates a work of the spirit in your life. And if the spirit is within you, then you are a child of God. Another way the spirit witnesses that we are children of God is by giving us the impulse that I just talked about as father. And the last one I'll mention is the very basis of our adoption. It is the spirit that assures us that we are children of God by enabling us to believe in Christ. If you're having doubts about your place in God's family, turn your attention once again to Jesus. Be reminded once again of who he is. He is the very son of God, the Messiah, who came in the form of a man to live on this earth. He lived a perfectly sinless life, and then he willingly gave up his life on the cross to receive the punishment that we deserved. Then he rose from the dead, victorious over death, hell, and the grave. That is the foundation of your salvation, and that is what the Spirit of God is going to assure you is true in in order to remind you That you are a child of God. Believe in Christ and believe in his promise to save those who believe in him. A promise that I have often held to through the years in times of trial is 1 Peter 2.6. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And that stone, of course, is Christ. And then it ends this way. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Whoever believes will not be put to shame. I'm suffering, but I believe. I'm hurting, but I believe. I'm, seer, I'm scared or ashamed or guilt-ridden, but I believe if you have the assurance of the Spirit that you are a child of God and you will not be put to shame. He will not turn you away. Being a child of God also means that you have an inheritance, as he mentions at the end of this passage. You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ, which means that we will share all that the Father is giving to Jesus. Now, Jesus earned his inheritance by perfect obedience, by this cosmic work of redemption that he accomplished. But he shares that inheritance graciously with us who believe in him and calls us brothers. And what is this inheritance we have to look forward to? Eternal life on the new earth, perfect and unhindered fellowship with God. We will see Jesus Christ face to face and we will have none of our sin hindering the free flow of affection, love, adoration, and worship that we will have for Christ. We also will share the rulership of the universe with Christ, but I realize when you think about the beauty, the glory, and the majesty of being in unhindered fellowship with Christ, that outshines everything with everything else. Excuse me. Since we're children of God, we are heirs of God. But Paul didn't stop there. He wrote, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now that last phrase in verse 17 is uncomfortable and kind of difficult to understand. So I'm going to skip that. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was tempted to. I really was. Why did Paul say that? I mean, let's, let's think about this. He's the, he says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs with God, fellow heirs with Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Praise God. Put a period there. But then he adds, provide with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul wanted to remind us that being a fellow heir with Jesus Christ means in this life, we are going to experience suffering. In the next life, we will experience the glorification that Jesus will give to us. But in this life, we are going to experience suffering. And let me point out once more that, once more that Paul is not saying that our suffering earns us salvation or earns us a place in God's family. Because again, that would go against everything he said in the first seven and a half chapters of the book of Romans. He's very clear that we are saved through faith by the grace of God alone. But he's reminding us that the path that we will walk from salvation to glorification is marked with suffering. We will suffer as Christ suffered in this life. There's the suffering of our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. Often kicked out of their families, fired from their jobs, and as you know, sometimes even beaten and killed for their faith in Jesus. There's the suffering that people experience with life-changing or life-threatening or heart disease. And then there's the suffering that every believer has in common, the suffering of our daily battle with sin. Because you are a new creation and because the Spirit of God now lives within you, there is a constant and painful war with your sinful flesh. <clears throat> but you can be assured that your suffering in whatever form it takes is part of your sonship. It is not a contradiction to what God has done for you. There are theologies that make their rounds through the Christian church, 
down through the centuries that teach that if they're suffering, that there must be some problem in your relationship with God. But what the Bible tells you is suffering is actually part of the lot that you get as a son of God in this life. <clears throat> and as Mark pointed out, God has many purposes for our sufferings, ultimately to make us more like Christ. Suffering isn't a sign that your connection to God has been severed. The word of God says that suffering is a guarantee for a child of God. And it's one of the means God uses to make us holy. The spirit of adoption leads us to kill sin. He impels us to call on God as father. And he assures us. That I'll sum it up this way. The spirit enables us to experience our sonship. The spirit of adoption activates the reality of sonship in our lives. He makes our sonship real by enabling us to live and love as children of God. Think about this. If Elon Musk's personal lawyer called you and said, Elon is putting you into his will. So upon his death, you will receive, let's say, $1 billion. Now that would be life-changing news, right? You would be overjoyed. But imagine further that the lawyer then sent men to your house to train you in how to manage wealth. And he said, here's Elon's personal number. Call him anytime you want. That would make the airship that you received real and alive because you would have this access to Elon. Well, that's what the Spirit does with us in our adoption from God. If all we had was the bare promise of God that we are sons and heirs, that would be wonderful, absolutely glorious. But God went beyond that. He generously and graciously gave us the Spirit to activate and make real our sonship, enabling us to call on God as Father, to fight sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. And to be assured of our place in the family of God. The Spirit enables us to experience our sonship. So let's wrap up by thinking about what we can do with that truth. There are a few ways I've suggested that you can respond to this. There's one in particular that I want to focus in on though. The third response. Ask the Lord for a deeper awareness and experience of your sonship. Your sonship was purchased by the life and work of Jesus Christ. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it, and you can't maintain it. Sonship is given by the grace of God to everyone who receives Christ. But when you give in to sin, and most especially that habitual sin that you have just fought year in and year out, that sin that seems to own you, that sin you just can't seem to get past, your soul gets clouded by shame and guilt. And the devil and your sin nature will try to leverage that shame and guilt to push you away from God. Ask the Lord to deepen your awareness of his sonship. So that even in those times of failure, you can remain grounded in the love of your father and be able to run to him instead of running away from him. When you're tempted to retreat from the Lord, maybe thinking that he wants nothing to do, you, do with you, ask the spirit to give you a deeper awareness of your sonship. Knowing that your perfect heavenly father always is ready and willing to talk to you. Always desires a close walk with you. Always loves and accepts you. When you experience tragedy such as the death of a loved one, divorce or a life-threatening sickness, your soul can get clouded by anger or pain or fear or confusion. And those things can be used as a wedge by your sinful flesh and by the devil to push you away from the father. Ask the Spirit to deepen your awareness of your sonship 
so that even in those times when you're at the very bottom, you can run to the Father and cry out to Him. Despite your anger, despite your fear, despite your confusion, your Father continues to love you and to hold you and to keep you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, we give you praise today. We give you praise that you have adopted us as sons. And then you sent your spirit to live in us to make that real, to enable us to experience this sonship. God, I pray that by a special measure of grace, you would move all of us that are believers in Christ today to fall before you and cry out to you as Abba, Father, today. Move us to love you, to respond to you in gratitude and grace, knowing that you receive us and accept us, even when we have just sinned, because you are our constant, loving, and faithful Father. God, I pray that if there are any saints in here suffering right now, feeling far from you, experiencing that confusion or fear or doubt, I pray that your spirit would lift them up and give them a renewed experience of their sonship. And Lord, if there are any in this building who do not know you and therefore are estranged from you, who are by nature children not of God but children of disobedience, I pray that you would convince them of the reality of Jesus Christ and his strong ability to save and draw them to call upon Jesus to forgive them and bring them into your family. Thank you for this gathering of your body, O God. Thank you for your constant grace and your indescribably great love. In your holy name, amen. God bless you all.